This week on the show, we have top 10 reasons to upgrade to FreeBSD 13.2 from the FreeBSD Foundation. The history never repeats, but sometimes it rhymes. That's an interesting article you should definitely check out. Uh, Wayland on OpenBSD and how that has progressed so far. OpenBGPD 8.1 has been released. A way to shoot yourself in the foot and learn from that. Uh, Zenbleed, aka the new fun for a while. And more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 522, Zenbleed Foot Shooting, recorded on the 31st of July 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. You may have heard the news, but uh, we will get to it a little bit uh, later because we found other headlines that may be more interesting to you. Well, what could be more interesting, you might ask. Well, how about the top 10 reasons to upgrade to FreeBSD 13.2? And that is done by the FreeBSD Foundation on their blog. And these are the following. The top 10 reasons they list. Um, before they go into it, they have a bit of an introductory blurb here that goes, seems like there are two types of people in the world when it comes to upgrading software. The folks who upgrade the minute the new version is released and the folks who keep putting it off until they absolutely have to. Honestly, uh, they probably fall in the latter category, but when it comes to FreeBSD, upgrading to the latest release provides you with better security, more features, and just generally a smoother experience. FreeBSD 13.2 release comes out in April, or came out in April, right? <laughs> it's been a while, yeah. So the FreeBSD 13.2 release came out in April. And for those of you who have not yet upgraded, we created the top 10 list of reasons to upgrade today. The first, hundreds of bug fixes and improvements. The second, numerous version upgrades of contributed software and drivers, including OpenSSH, LibArchive, LLVM, and the Clang compiler. The third, workaround for a flaw in Intel. 12th and 13th generation hybrid CPUs, the bug can lead to file system corruption with UFS and MS-DOSFS, and probably other memory corruption. The slower cores, which are the E-cores, they automatically use a slower method of page invalidation with the workaround. The fourth, address space layout randomization is now enabled for 64-bit executables by default for greater security. The fifth, the WireGuard VPN driver has been reintegrated into the kernel, allowing access to a faster and more secure VPN experience. Are you convinced yet? Then, uh, if not, then look at the sixth kernel TLS, which is uh, abbreviated to KTLS, that has uh, added receive offload support for TLS version 1.3. The seventh, Intel Wi Fi drivers have been updated and a driver for Realtek Wi Fi was added. The eighth, snapshots are now possible on UFS file systems with journal soft updates allowing background backups. The ninth, the FreeBSD hypervisor Beehive supports more virtual CPUs. And the 10th, last but not least, DPDK routing modules have been added for systems with large routing tables. So of course, this is just a top 10 list. The beauty of FreeBSD is that you can customize it to meet your needs. Be sure to check the full release notes that are linked from the blog post to see what else might have been upgraded to make your life easier. 
And remember, being a pro at procrastination never got anyone ahead. Upgrade to 13.02 today. He here. 13.2, uh, it was a smooth upgrade from 13.1 or even uh, I yeah, had some just... hosts from 13.0. So, uh, mm. yeah. Moving on from there, it's easy enough. It's just, ah, did the upgrade this afternoon and could continue right away. Right. Uh, the next one is uh, slightly off the BSD tinge, um, as a lot of listeners would have heard about the restriction that Red Hat Enterprise Linux uh, on the source code that Red Hat has put on their uh, code tree uh, that's no longer available as a general download from their CentOS um, Git repository. Uh, this is not a article that, um, well, I've actually cut this article down so it's it's really just focusing on the history aspect because we've been here before we've we've seen this before and uh, jeremy allison did a good write-up of the actual um what's going on now he's got a bit of a conflict of interest um uh for the organization that he's working with but um the the context he's writing in is quite sound so sort of with that out of the road i just sort of this is not a red hat bashing um we want to keep this as um you know just a history lesson of, of we've seen this before. So Jeremy Allison is uh, one of the co, co-founders co of Samba. So everybody's probably interacted with the software that he's written over their lifetime of uh, being a sysadmin. So uh, as somebody that I actually looked up to uh, when I was uh, learning to become a sysadmin back in the 90s. So, um, you know, he's got um, uh, vast experience uh, with, the Linux subsystem and Unix in general. So with that out of the road, let's sit around the campfire and let's tell a story. Red Hat recently announced that they were restricting access to the source code of Red Hat Enterprise Linux to their customers under contract. There's much more complexity and nuance in this situation than the simple statement, but I think it captures the essence of the change. Jeremy Allison says that he's not a lawyer, so this is read in his words. Uh, he's not a lawyer, and I'm not going to speculate on the legality or otherwise of their decision. I have a long history with Red Hat and open source. My work on the free, free software predates the invention of open source term itself, back when it was just free software. Red Hat once thought highly of my contributions to open source that they asked me to record a section on open source for their new hire orientation video. As of a few years ago, confirmed by a Red Hat hire to me, I was still in it. Early box versions of Red Hat used to advertise a contained Samba version XXX on the side, which I still find highly complimentary. But I've seen situations in the past that bear some similarities and it's worth reviewing some history. Cue the harp music. The past. Enterprise business. And so business in brackets computing was once dominated by a titan of operating systems except for the mainframe market it ran almost all business applications there were many companies selling versions of it all of them were fighting for dominance but there was one in particular who was the most successful and defined the gold standard for business operations back in those days of proprietary software dominance all of the enterprise operating system vendors licensed the original source code from the manufacturer, which strangely enough wasn't the most popular version, and all of them made changes to it. Some were subtle changes, some were large new components, but all the versions were similar enough. 
with that minor porting effort, business applications could run on them. They were compatible, which was considered the greatest of values. I'm talking about Unix, of course. Unix was an enterprise computing standard and that the base of that standard was a published document called POSIX, which is short for Portable Operating System Interface with an X tag to the, uh, on the end urging of Richard Dorman. It wasn't owned by anyone and many companies created versions of it, usually based on the original code from AT&T and sometimes with the additional code developed at the University of California, Berkeley. The most popular version, which was the one sold by Sun Microsystems, was Sun OS, later called Solaris. Sun felt they owned the Unix standard, or at least were the leading developers of it. Then in the mid-1990s, a new upstart code base was developed. This was the Linux kernel. It leveraged the existing alternate library and application code, the GNU library, compilers, and utilities created by the Free Software Foundation and provided the missing kernel pieces that the Free Software Foundation had long struggled with creating. But it was a clone of Unix, and particularly Sun OS and Solaris. It was specifically written to make moving applications from Sun OS to Linux trivial and easy, providing many of the same interfaces and extra features that were previously available only in Sun OS. I myself ported Samba to Linux easily during this time. Sun hated Linux. They complained that it was destroying the value of Unix. Why buy an official Unix when you could get the same thing for free via Linux distributions? Who would maintain this free product? If everyone was working on a free product, who would pay developers to maintain it? They claimed their Unix was superior. They claimed their Unix had fewer bugs. They claimed their Unix had better support. They claimed their Unix had better performance. In the beginning, all of these things were true, of course. It didn't matter. Linux ended up crushing Solaris, the official Unix. The reason was that free and open source Linux distributions provided one great value to customers that official Unixes could not. That was the freedom for users. Linux was free to use. Linux was free to deploy. Linux was open to all users to modify and develop. Eventually, Sun realized the value and released Solaris under an open source license, although deliberately incompatible with Linux so no code could be shared. It was too late. A once great company, Sun was picked up by Oracle, not even for its operating system business, but mostly for the Java language. Solaris is now a footnote in history along with all the other proprietary Unixes except for IBM's AIX. IBM knows a thing or two about maintaining legacy operating systems that might stand them in good stead in the future. Who knows? In killing the legacy Unix market, Linux opened up the entire Unix ecosystem in a way that was simply wasn't thought possible in the mid to late 1990s. At the time, legacy Unix was going to be killed by Microsoft Windows. All the popular magazines, yes, printed on paper, said so. Of course, now there are more Linux engineers employed writing software both open source and proprietary than Sun or other Unix vendors could possibly have dreamed of. Hosts on Azure, the Microsoft Cloud, are more than 50% Linux, not Windows. Crank up the DeLorean, we're going back to the present. Red Hat Enterprise Linux, or RHEL, is considered the gold standard of business operating systems. Being compatible with RHEL is essential 
to running many business applications. Many business software vendors only test and support their applications on RHEL or some version of RHEL. RHEL was never free to use, but clones of it were. If you wanted an official Red Hat support version, you've purchased an official Red Hat Enterprise subscription. If not, then users could choose Oracle Enterprise Linux, CentOS, or later after Red Hat discontinued CentOS, Rocky Linux and Alma Linux, and others. All of them were based on the same code as Red Hat Enterprise Linux, made freely available via open source licensing terms. This whole set of compatible versions of Linux creates the ecosystem for Enterprise Linux. The whole value of it was for the users is that isn't owned by any one company, even though all the commercial players would love to be in that position. That's just a that's just the nature of business. Indeed, if any one company did own it all and exclude all others, the value for users would be significantly less. Users who deploy Enterprise Linux can migrate between versions at will, keeping their costs low and choosing support models that work best for them. In their recent move to restrict the source code, Red Hat is trying to eliminate any clones of Red Hat Enterprise Linux and make it only available from Red Hat. My advice to Red Hat management is to be careful what you wish for. Let's screw our crystal ball and marble control lever back into our time machine and go into, now that was a great reference at the time machine, HG Wells, uh, the cloudy future. Imagine Red Hat succeeds in eliminating all vendors it calls rebuilders from Enterprise Linux. Congratulations, Red Hat, you're now king of the hill and all users who want a true Enterprise Linux will be purchasing Red Hat subscriptions. What will this do for Enterprise Linux ecosystem? True, restricting access to source code goes against everything all the engineers I know in the open source community believe in. Ultimately, it just doesn't work. Customers want flexibility and control how to consume and deploy Enterprise Linux systems. They can't get it from Red Hat or any of the rebuilders. They will go somewhere else. Maybe not immediately, but eventually Red Hat Enterprise Linux will fade as the gold standard. And, you know, that might be the users that come across to BSDs. Yeah. We are. We are. I, um, you know, we, we are the alternative to uh, Enterprise Linux. So if you're, if you're stuck in this situation and you're looking for a, a a different exit strategy, um, you know, by all, by all means, our arms are open. So come, come over the fence. The, uh, the water's fine. Yeah. And you don't have to relearn too many new things. I mean, as I always say, CP move LS are basically the same everywhere, uh, depending on some different switches maybe, but you don't have to relearn the whole Unix, uh, way of working, uh, by, when switching to a different system. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're well-versed in, uh, the Unixes um, as the POSIX standard that we've had in the past, uh, and you've been a Solaris admin, AIX admin, um, uh, HPUX, uh, the list goes on. Uh, mm. If you if you were one of those administrators, you know you can pick up the BSDs quite simply. It's not uh, complex. Uh, like if you look at uh, ifconfig in Solaris, it's still the same as ifconfig in FreeBSD and OpenBSD. It's not. Um, it's not a total change like they've done. I mean, obviously, for technical reasons, they've done the change in Linux to uh, the IP tool. But if you're an old school sysadmin, we've still got those old school tools that are built in the base and work uh, very well with the with the kernel and interact that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think about uh, working or thinking about, about outside of the box that you're currently in and uh, not 
all the grass is greener over there, but it's probably easier to go on that little meadow uh, where the BSDs are jumping around. <laughs> That's a crazy metaphor, but I guess you know what I mean. Okay, moving into the news roundup this week is uh, Wayland on OpenBSD. So that's kind of an overview of what's available and what's working already uh, on xenocara.org. So these are the notes uh, from experimenting with building Wayland bits on OpenBSD during the G2K23 in Tallinn, thanks to the OpenBSD Foundation for organizing this event. And this is uh, still far from a complete running system, as there are many issues on the road, but it's a good start, and it shows what it's definitely not impossible to get Wayland running on OpenBSD. So this is updated to reflect that all of this is now a work-in-progress set of ports. So they have a disclaimer at the beginning. Uh, they don't know much about Wayland internals. They're discovering that on the way, so some stuff here may look naive or totally wrong to experienced Wayland developers, of course. Yeah, okay. Uh, they're not discussing here on why Wayland. You may find some answers in a separate paper they wrote in 2017 in French. And another disclaimer reads, the build instructions below will probably break your system. Use a separate machine for this. Okay. The general ideas uh, they list is... They're using the WL Roots library and will focus on compositors, Sway, Tiny, WL Plus, and more, as well as applications that use them. Uh, GNOME GTK Plus based or GTK or QT based applications will wait until someone else build Wayland support for those toolkits on OpenBSD. Uh, the output paths is more or less ready with the DRI and MESA porting efforts, mostly JSG and Ketanis worked on that. Uh, JSG's GitHub fork of Mesa is being used to build it on Meson. This may not be needed, but they haven't checked. So seed management is going to be minimal, as OpenBSD doesn't support this. Seed-D and Slip-Seed provide support for non-systemd-based system. A basic port to OpenBSD WSCons is needed. Uh, input is more complex to get working, since Wayland applications expect Linux input model with UDEV, EVDEV, and libinput. Uh, and there are some issues individually of those that are listed also. But let's go into available ports. So all needed ports are available on a separate repository linked from the article. This can be cloned into my stuff to build and install the packages over an existing ports tree. So you clone that repo into a local directory. It doesn't have to be my stuff, but um, they use it here. And then just make install in that directory, for example, in the subdirectory for Sway. Uh, SysUtils seed-d, the original project, is on the source hut. OpenBSD's port is very minimal, but enough for now. The to-do reads make it more complete. WRT VT switching using FBTAB and some sort of session management. Then there is libinput OpenBSD. This is the version from MPI patched by Radovsky plus extra UDEV code from uh, the author here. They are now added proper events, translation for mouse buttons and keyboards so that the input works in a usable way in Wayland. Okay, so they list all individual utilities here. Some of them uh, more or less complete, some of them needing a bit more work. For example, uh, Wayland Havoc is the simplest terminal emulator application for Wayland that they could find and that builds an OpenBSD with minimal changes. Then there is Sway, for example, which is a tiled Wayland compositor compatible with i3 that has been ported to OpenBSD and seems to work. 
uh, there's sway image to do. There needs to be a port. Uh, for now, people can clone a repo and build it locally. There's also a default cursor theme. Wayland doesn't provide cursors by default, so one needs to install the GNOME icon theme package or any other package providing a default theme. Uh, because of the cursor path mentioned above, link user local share icons to tilde slash dot icons for now to get cursors. Fonts. Uh, Wayland is using font config, so it can use any fonts installed via package underscore add. Swaybar expects terminus font to be available so have that to make it work. Running Wayland. One needs to set a number of environment variables. The following script run wl helps. So that exports the xdg underscore runtime dir, which needs to be there so that Wayland is happy. And underscore uh, Wayland underscore display to Wayland dash zero, for example. Okay, then you start cd with do as, of course, for that user that you're having, or a root user even. Or an unprivileged user if you want to have it a bit more secure and then a log for debug output and then you start um, this way for example after having exported those variables xdg runtime dir and wrl uh, wlr and <laughs> underscore drm devices and then you start an application like havoc for example with run wl havoc that should give you uh, the terminal on the wayland desktop so Sway starts X Wayland automatically if an application needs X. It can also be started manually, but not in rootless mode. Uh, this is a Wayland security feature. X applications work in the X Wayland in Windows mode, but OpenGL X applications crash probably because of mismatched Mesa versions in their builds, but that uh, will be worked on. They list a couple things uh, more to do. GTK applications, GT applications, uh, uchart.h and chart32 underscore t, swaylock, pledge and unveil. So for that latter one, none of the above current implementations use pledge or unveil support, nor any other form of sandboxing as far as they can tell. This could be looked at some point. So yeah, first make it run and then make it secure. That's the idea here. So known issues at the end. Uh, Sway sometimes crashes in startup because of a use of the free error happening somewhere in font config and Sway will crash the kernel during startup from time to time. They don't know if it's a problem specific to the DRI driver for the Intel Iris 12th generation GPU in their test laptop or a general bug. Test on a machine with a serial console is the to-do here to get a backtrace if possible. Yeah, that's interesting uh, to see how they're going with uh, Wayland, it's certainly not uh, an easy uh, project by any means, uh, and you know, for a small team, it's uh, quite quite a, a complex undertaking. So uh, the you know the end end game will be you know a really good uh, compositor for uh, OpenBSD, but uh, yeah, there's still a fair bit of work to do there. I know um, Wayland's uh, well well ahead in FreeBSD. Um, I was using it at one stage there for KDE um, uh, Wayland sessions. So, um, yeah, I believe that uh, that's uh, that's going on quite nicely. So, um, yeah, there's a fair bit of, fair bit of work happening in, in the Wayland space inside the BSDs. And knowing OpenBSD, they will probably discover a couple of security thingies that should be corrected and that if that gets upstreamed, then everyone benefits from those enhancements. Very much so. 
Moving on to an article in the OpenBSD journal uh, titled OpenBGPD 8.1 has been released. So this is uh, the cut um, of OpenBGPD out of uh, OpenBSD uh, for portable uh, use uh, for anybody in the Linux, FreeBSD, uh, NetBSD or any other space that um, wish to compile it for their operating system or package it up. Um, I know I use uh, OpenBGPD in uh, FreeBSD, I think it's at 7.7 at the moment, but um, uh, no doubt uh, the um, package maintainers will uh, get that uplifted pretty quickly. So let's uh, just go through the article. Uh, so uh, the project uh, from Claudio Jecker has uh, announced the release of 8.1 and it'll be arriving in your OpenBGPD directory of your local OpenBSD mirror soon. So it also takes into some of the errata that has made uh, its way into the 7.3 release. Uh, so errata 02, 06, and 09. Uh, so that's been pulled into the portable version before it was um, released. Uh, so if you're using, uh, so basically, uh, OpenBSD 7.3 or current, you're already using basically the same code that 8.1 is using. Uh, so some fixes that have gone into the 8.1 release is uh, avoid fatal errors in BGPD due to incorrect uh, ref counting and mishandling of ASPA objects. Um, the fix in BGP CTL show rib in by renaming invalid to disqualified. Uh, the incorrect length handling of path attributes in BGPD can lead to a session reset. Uh, when tracking net next hops over IPv6 multipath routes, when receiving a notification while reaching an internal limit, BGPD could crash. When add configuration options to adjust www-user and www-run-state-de. Fix x-community star-star matching, which also affects filters removing all uh, ext communities. Limit the socket buffer size to 64k for all sessions. Limiting the buffer size to a reasonable size ensures that not too many updates end up queued in the TCP stack. OpenVGPD Portable is known to compile and run on FreeBSD and Linux distributions such as Alpine, Debian, Fedora, Red Hat, CentOS, and Ubuntu. It is our hope that the packages take interest and help adapt OpenVGPD Portable to more distributions. We welcome feedback and improvements from the broader community. Thanks all to those that have contributed to help make this release possible. Mm -hmm. Very good. Seeing that updated, uh, I guess people will be uh, more likely to use it. All right. Then next up, we have a bit of an unusual article, but hear us out. Uh, shoot yourself in the foot. Wait, what? Well, yeah, with a super soaker, that's not too difficult. Um, <laughs> this is uh, why it's necessary to shoot yourself in the foot more like, and that may pick your interest. And this is what we uh, also thought good to have on the show. So without shooting yourself in the foot, learning lacks motivation. Complexity without reason is really confusing. So at the Recurse Center, February 22, uh, the author here watched a talk during presentations about someone optimizing a database engine. It was really complicated, and they remember nothing about the talk itself. What they do remember is thinking to, my, to themselves, hmm, this seems really complicated for no good reason. Keep in mind, they had never made a web application at that time, and when they needed to store data, they just used a CSV file or a Python pickle file on the disk. 
They thought that a file system was sufficient for storing data. Fast forward a few months and they're building their first web application. Okay, the author here uh, don't remember what it was for, but they do remember using a CSV file as the database. They had to load the file into memory every time they wanted to look something up and it was just a big pain. They now understand why using a database is sometimes a good idea. Okay, next piece, learning Rust July 2020. They start learning about the borrow checker. It prevents you from keeping a pointer to an item of a vector. Uh, so this is, you know, ampersand vec of uh, index i. If you pass the vector t as a mutable, I don't really get why this is necessary. I have never done low-level programming before, never used pointers, and now I'm able, uh, or I'm now being told that following the borrow checker is safe, it is still very confusing to them. Okay, fast forward to when they are writing zig code. They take, uh, you know, the reference array underscore list dot items at position i, append to the array list and then try to write to the stored pointer. They get a sec fault. Ah, now they get the problem Rust solves. Okay, next is learning view July 2020. Why are there all of these complicated ways to represent state? Shouldn't developing a web app be simpler than this? After writing a bunch of vanilla JS, they can see why these frameworks could be useful. They have never made a very big web application, but they could see that keeping track of state and what it is or isn't rendered is hard and gets much harder with a bigger web application. Okay, so to fully understand a best practice or why something is necessary, it's important to experience how things go wrong without it. When teaching programming, we should let people make these mistakes and then show them the tools to correct them. Just giving someone a complicated tool without a salient reason to explain this complexity will just make them really confused. So some opinions here. You should store stuff in CSV files before using a database. You should learn ZIG or C before you learn Rust. You should write a web app in vanilla JavaScript before you learn a framework. You should write a game from scratch before using Unity. You should use Java C from the command line before using an IDE. Yeah. Have you had any experience like this? Email them uh, and they'll put it below. So they have provided some examples for readers already. Uh, one of them goes, you should learn assembly before you learn optimization. Oh, yeah. And another one is use HTML before using a CMS like WordPress. And there's more on Hacker News. I guess they posted it there and got a bunch of comments from there. So that's definitely something to check out. Yeah, the uh, learn assembly uh, before you learn optimizations. I think it's uh, you know too much of a, a bad practice that developers do these days and throw more resources at the problem rather than looking at the optimizations that they should have been making in the in the low level code. Uh, ah, and the learning's know. not in vain, right? You can still use it later when you go have more sophisticated tools at hand. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it, there's nothing wrong with adding more resources as the load ramps up, but um, you know, don't add a heap of resources just to get something over the line uh, because you're just in for a world of pain later on down the track. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and wrapping up here, uh, we're just touching on another OpenBSD journal article, and it's uh, very time dependent here. Uh, Theo Dirac uh, on Zenbleed. So everybody would have seen Zenbleed uh, sort of warm up all their feeds over the last mm -hmm. uh, couple of weeks and uh, what was going to come out, um, all the fallout there. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I, and I'm wondering, you know, while this affects AMD CPUs, uh, how much uh, is Intel in this issue as well, sort of thing? Because no doubt, uh, this this is going to be poked on Intel CPUs to see if the vulnerability exists there. So mm. oh, I suppose yeah. it's going to be another one of those. What's the what's this space? Anyway, back to the article. Uh, the buzzword bug, <laughs> the buzzword bug of the week is Zenbleed, which affects various AMD uh, processors and is explained in more detail here. So there's, there's, there's links that um, are referenced in the, dot, the article. So, you know, please go and check the show notes and uh, go and uh, review those links yourself. Uh, in OpenBSD, the current snapshots have already got the fixes and errata patches will go out with the supported releases 7.2 and 7.3 shortly. Uh, I've, as time of recording those those patches have gone out and all the firmware has been updated and ready to roll. So uh, following the instructions that uh, are in this post and uh, Theo's original email to the list, uh, we'll get your system uh, patched and, and uh, back to a safe standard. So reading further into uh, Theo's uh, email, uh, Zenbleed Errata for 7.2 and 7.3 will come out soon. Sys upgrade of the current snapshot or it contains a fix. I wanted to share some notes on the impact. OpenBSD does not use any of the AVX instructions to the same extent that Linux and Microsoft do, so this is not as important. On Linux, glibc has AVX-based optimizations for simple functions, string and memory copies, which will store secrets into the register file, which can be extracted trivially, so the impact on glibc-based systems is huge. While working on our fixes, I ran this test program for quite a while and I never saw anything resembling a text string. However, when I ran a browser, I saw streams of what was possibly and graphics related fragments flowing past. The base system clearly uses AVX very rarely by itself. In summary, in OpenBSD, this isn't a big deal today. However, attacks built upon primitives always get better over time. So I urge everyone to install these workarounds as soon as our errata ships. P.S. If you're using syspatch for any of these new errata, you must install the boot blocks yourself. Syspatch cannot install them for you. So you must run this yourself before your last reboot. So he's got the, ins- uh, the examples here. If you're using a SCSI disk or an IDE disk with install boot, minus V, SD0 or WD0, depending on your system. Our CPU firmware update mechanisms uses boot blocks to load the firmware from your disk and provides it to the kernel. So if you don't have new boot box, you won't be protected. So yeah, go and start patching a kit if you've got any releases out there for 7.2 and 7.3. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as other operating systems in the BSD space provide similar patches, uh, we will mention it on the show as well so that you also know what to do. Watch this space. Ah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated, so that bandwidth can be saved. 
It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. And Ian uh, has referenced us um, from a previous discussion or a kind of a mention that we did on the, uh, on the side where people mentioned that they use uh, BSD Now episodes uh, before going to sleep and to kind of doze off slightly. So uh, we could earn millions for people with insomnia, insomnia, right, getting them to sleep. But that's everyone's uh, own choice. And this one is about dozing off when listening. Because you may want to listen to the place where you dozed off and don't know where that happened. And he provides the uh, kind of a solution for that. As for your question about knowing where you dozed off, etc., you develop a sort of sense for this over the years. There are also a few cues which can help. For one, the podcast app on my iPhone has a sleep timer, which I set to the end of the episode. If I finish the episode before dozing off, I normally have a distinct memory of this. If I don't have a distinct memory, I rewind a few minutes and, if necessary, a few minutes more until I get to the point where I don't recognize the content anymore and finish while making my coffee. Cheers and keep up the good work. Thank you, Ian. That's yeah, definitely a helpful thing to have. Yeah, I, I, I thought this was my own workflow for listening to the podcast when I'm falling asleep. I usually just set it to about 15 minutes because I, I fall asleep real fast. So um, okay. I uh, I crank up the, the podcast and then it's like, yeah, five minutes, I'm out. And then it's like, oh, well, I know it's only gone for 15 minutes, so I only had to go back and find it out. <laughs> so it's like when I read Ian's email, I've just gone, oh, that's a bit of deja vu right there. Yeah, hopefully because uh, not any nightmares this way and to sleep is uh, just pleasant all right um then yeah. we have nick's bites uh with news on netbsd uh just curious uh any cool news on netbsd and its projects also maybe uh, would be a good idea to have a roster of how people can contribute to various uh, bsd projects with specific areas around uh, the project's needs um that they need help with uh, for example update of websites documentation artwork etc Cheers, next bites. Uh, so I think um, you know that we let's put the call out. Uh, any of the the um, project maintainers uh, for FreeBSD, uh, NetBSD, Dragonfly BSD, or OpenBSD, if you've got uh, anything that you uh, need uh, work or help on, uh, send it to us to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and then we can get that information out to the uh, listeners. So they can uh, huh. potentially help if they've got the skill sets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I distinctly see now that we haven't covered NetBSD too much recently. Um, I've, I'm fairly sure that they also participate in Google Summer of Code this summer again. So maybe there's something on the NetBSD blog. We'll look into that and update uh, our future episodes um, with some more NetBSD content. So thanks for that. And yeah, as uh, mentioned, we... Uh, 
can point to each page that projects have for kind of junior jobs or help us out with uh, various things. And that way you can get into various uh, projects. Uh, and then who knows what happens, right? You can do a bit more once you get familiar with it and become a contributor uh, on your own time. The next email is from Philip. You can read it out, Benedict. Philip has my, questions. It's, yeah. got, it's got my name in it, so you can read <laughs> <Okay>. this one out. <laughs> okay, we'll do that. So uh, Philip writes, thank you for the great show. You're welcome. I enjoy your show for years and I'm always looking forward to it. Ah, wonderful. You got me into ZFS and BSD in general. Wonderful. Our mission is complete here. But there's uh, more. It's sad to see Alan go as a host, but Jason seems to be the perfect replacement. Ah, here we go. Uh, Alan is not completely gone. We'll probably invite him back for interviews or extra uh, special episodes. So just um, to let you know. I'm excited for more OpenBSD insights. Yep, you can get them here. Uh, I have a couple of questions surrounding the FreeBSD update process. Upgrading OpenBSD is a breeze compared to FreeBSD. So uh, I've upgraded from 13.0 to 13.2 recently. I used the server as a jail host and NFS server. The question zero, is it possible to upgrade a minor version from 13.0 to 13.2 directly? Yes, it is. Um, in fact, you can go from, say, and I've had to do this recently because I had something that needed to be uplifted from 11.4 uh, and then was able to go straight to 13.2. And yeah, there is no issues with going there. Um, going between minor versions, you can get away with sometimes not However, it's not recommended to not do this, um, but sometimes you do have to do it. Um, you can go with uh, and finish the user land uh, upgrade uh, before doing the reboot. It's highly not recommended doing that because it may have been an ABI fix or something like that. So um, always reboot uh, after you've done the first first uh, kernel. But if you're going from you know an earlier version to a later version, there is no issues with uh, that. Uh, I've done it many times myself. Yeah, check out the individual um, release notes. There may be some things that you need to be aware of, but I'm not uh, recalling anything from 13.0. Mm. No, there was, there was nothing. There's no, nothing really going to catch you out there. Yeah. Okay, next question. Uh, Uname-A still shows the old version, 13.0. Is this normal or did I miss something? I think um, the reboot hasn't occurred uh, since uh, the reboot because if you do a Uname-A, um, between 13.0 and 13.2, if you've rebooted the system, uh, it will show the newer version. Um, so, yeah, I think that's just the particular step that's been missed there. Yeah, there's also an addendum to the previous um, or to this particular question. This is the output regarding um, the uname-a. We're using FreeBSD-version here, and he provides a dash -r, dash -k, and dash -u outputs. And those differ a bit. Uh, so the proper order is uh, FreeBSD version KRU, which shows kernel uh, release and user land, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, the man page describes what those individual um, switches display, and this is the normal way. If you haven't rebooted yet, then one of them still shows the old version around. Um, let's go to uh, question number two. What diff tool do you use to use with bin vi during the up? great process i basically just want to see the new files unless i modified the file then keep the old file i think there's a switch for that even to not see that uh things that haven't changed or that don't need any merging 
Yeah, I I don't I don't worry about it. I just you know I deal with the the questions as they pop up if I'm doing an interactive upgrade. So uh, I'm not really um, sure how to answer this one, <laughs> Benedict. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things in the man page or the uh, freebasedupdate.com file where you can configure this in certain ways. Uh, this is well documented in the file itself. Um, also consult maybe the FreeBSD handbook if they have something about this. Uh, but definitely the defaults don't hurt. Of course, you can have a fancy diff tool uh, integrated in there. But normally for this kind of work, you do it only once a year or even longer than that. So don't bother too much with it, keeping it fancy. Um, the defaults work quite well. Next is, how do you upgrade your jails? What tools or processes do you use? They're using IOCage. Yeah, so I've used IOCage in the past. Uh, I now use Bastille. Uh, so IOCage is, you know, it's quite, they're both similar to how they do the uplift. And you should always do your um, operating system or your, your user land upgrade inside the jail from outside the jail otherwise you'll end up with some issues if you're trying to do freebsd update with inside the jail so um upgrading jails for io cages uh like if you're doing a a minor or major release upgrade uh from the user land inside the existing jail you use the io cage upgrade dash r and then specify the release you wish to go up to obviously you can't go beyond the release uh that you're currently running on the host just got to you've just got to you know um work on uh your actual releases you won't be able to do like a beta update so say if you're running um release candidate or a beta upgrade for a new release you won't be able to bring your jails up to that release mm -hmm. um and then if you're just doing a like an update like inside the same release uh for for bugs and errata it's just basically the IO cage update which basically does the freebsd update fetch and install uh, on the host yeah the nice thing about these jail managers is that they do a snapshot before the upgrade so in case anything goes wrong in the jail then you can still go back to the time before the jail was updated uh, if you're running those on zfs that is uh, so iocage update then jail name and that should uh, do the thing for you the iocage man page has this also described and question four is, since OpenBSD only supports NFSv3, do you use NFSv4 at all across your servers or do you disable it? So I have at work um, a nice machine that does uh, v4, uh, FreeBSD with ZFS, exporting a certain data set with a share NFS property, and that is fairly good and uh, exports to Linux servers and to BSD systems and never had an issue with it. Yeah, the um, the, just the standard default configuration. If you're putting in the rc.conf file, it'll be uh, NFS, NFSv3, uh, and you know that that does what I need it to. Um, I don't need the fancy uh, for for a lot of the stuff that I do. I don't need the fancy a ACLs that uh, v4 has to offer. Um, mm. the, those ACLs are quite good, especially on ZFS. Um, if you're using like a hybrid configuration using Samba or something like that, it allows you the Windows uh, machines to uh, be able to update permissions. But I digress there. This We're talking about NFS here, uh, NFS v4, yeah. Um, I haven't heard of anybody having any issues with it. But um, yeah, I just use plain old vanilla NFS v3 for uh, my deployments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfectly fine. 
So hope that uh, answers your questions and you get uh, what you wanted from that. It's not too difficult doing the upgrades, even if you are a couple versions behind. And then you can enjoy the features that the higher versions provide. All right, that pretty much wraps up this episode. Uh, it was always fun to record it and reading through what people uh, have written on the webs about uh, various BSD issues and Unix in general, as mentioned. And yeah, we leave you at that. Anything uh, we want to mention at the end? Can't no. think of anything. Don't forget to th send that feedback or your questions into feedback at bsdnow.tv and uh, we will get to them very soon. Yep. All right. See you next week. Thank you. Catch you later.